What was that? Oh, I must have still been dreaming. God, what a horrible dream. And it felt so real. I don't think I've ever been so afraid. I didn't know I could fight like that. And that sound was so loud. It's still dark out. I wonder what time it is. 4.45. I can still get a little more sleep. Ugh. I have to pee. Guess I'm getting up. Should I turn my lamp on? No. Then I'll just wake up more, and I definitely don't want to start my morning now. Also, I probably should be nice and let Josh stay asleep. It's stupid early. Ooh, it's cold out of the covers. Why am I so cold? Oh, wait. Oh, am I... I'm all wet. What is all over me? Oh, could I have wet the bed? No, it's not on my pants. Maybe I knocked my water over? No, it's not on the bed. What the hell would soak only my shirt? All right, that's it. I have to turn on the light. What the hell? Blood. It's, it's definitely blood, and there's so much of it. Why is it all over me? Am I hurt? Wait, nothing hurts. And I don't see anything bleeding. I don't feel anything. What the hell is this? Where is Josh? Josh! Why is he not in bed? Blood isn't on his side. Just mine. Am I even awake? The cat. It must have been the cat. She probably caught something outside and brought it into the bed. Damn it, Coco. Where is the rest of whatever this is? There's nothing in the bed. Josh's side is clear. Oh, you know what? Maybe he's cleaning it up. <sighs> I bet I'm gonna find him by the back door getting rid of whatever this was. Josh. Josh! There's more blood in the hallway. Drops, though. A smear ooh on the wall. Wait. Wait. What is that sound? It's not stopping. Is it... The vacuum? Josh! God damn it, why isn't he answering me? It's not the vacuum, it's something else. The garbage disposal. The garbage disposal? Just running and running. Why would he leave the garbage disposal on? What is he doing? Josh, I'm not amused. Shut that damn thing off. All right, I'm coming downstairs. Josh! Okay, come on. I'm just gonna go look. I'm just gonna look. Last chance! I'm coming down! Oh god. There's someone standing at the sink. Who is that? Who's there? What are you doing in my sink? I see you. I can see you. God damn it. Look up. Look at me. Look at me. It's not moving. At all. What do I do? Why is it standing at the sink like that? Nothing needs to be put through the garbage disposal for that long. I have to call 911. Okay, okay, okay. 911. Yes, hello? Yeah, there's someone in my house and I, I, I can't find my husband. He, he was there when I went to sleep and then I woke up and there's blood all over and someone is standing in my kitchen running the garbage disposal, just running it and running it. They aren't moving. I'm so, I'm so scared. Please, someone, send someone quickly. Yes. Yes, I can stay on the line. What? No. 
No, they're not moving. The person hasn't moved at all. I can't even see their head. They're slumped over. You want me to get closer? Okay. Hold on. I have to be quiet. Wait. Josh? What are you doing? Hello? What are you doing in the sink? Talk to me! Oh god, it's everywhere. The blood is everywhere now. His hands, they're caught in the drain. It's horrible. Oh, his hands are in the drain. I have to turn it off. I have to turn it off. There. Josh, look at me. Oh god, where are your eyes? Hang on. You have to hang on. You have to hang on. I have 911 on the phone. Yes, please. Yes, yes, yes. Come quickly. Someone has attacked my husband. I I'm afraid he isn't going to make it. His hands are ground down to nothing and he's missing his eyes. He's bleeding from everywhere. It looks like something tore him apart. Josh, Josh, can you hear me? Who did this to you? Just, just, just try and tell me who did this so I can tell the police. What? No. I'm here with you. Who was it? You don't know what you're saying right now. You've lost too much blood. Why would... Wait. The dream. It all seems so real, and that's because... Oh, no. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I swear I didn't know. Yes, I'm still here. No, officer. There's no one else in the house. I know who did this. It was me. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We, we would be, be dead. Aliens and claustrophobia. <laughs> like you've already scared me. This isn't fair. I wasn't even trying to specifically get you oh this time. My gosh. It was a spooky one. Hmm. <sighs> hey Leslie. Hi, Holly. <laughs> hey, Fiends. Well, I'm still not over at last week's episode, but I sure I'm ready to move on and forget about it. <laughs> <sighs> Forever and ever. Talk about eyeless, handless people. <laughs> How about you? You ready for that? No. No? Okay. <laughs> but I'm definitely going to hand it to you, Leslie. You did a really stellar job last week. Thank you. And I promise not to talk about butt stuff again for a really long time. Okay. Mm -hmm. I expect you to do the same. I will try. <laughs> it's hard. It comes up a lot in true crime. <laughs> it really hasn't. I guess not. I guess a couple times, maybe. But Albert Fish, it definitely came up. Mm -hmm. But, like, mostly it's aliens who like the butt stuff. Mm. Here we are talking about it again. <laughs> we really did talk about it a lot. And if you are super confused and listening right now, definitely go back and listen to last week's terrifying episode about aliens. I won't, but you should, for sure. <laughs> and while you're at it, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts already, why not just... 
scroll down and leave a little five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And I opened a show this week, so my skin is really in need of some rejuvenating validation. You know, all that makeup really clogs up pores. Mm -hmm. I think some validation might get me right back on track. What do you think? I think so too. It's really the best way. So please help me out. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for a little monthly donation, you can gain access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, and some extra mini-sodes. You will also get a little gift from us, special offers in our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that seems to be a little too much for you, you can simply share anything in our social media feed to your social media feeds. Tell us when you're listening. Post about your favorite episode. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell that terrifying barn owl that won't stop looking in your window at night. What's his name? George. George. That was quick, too. (laughs) You felt George in your soul. Okay. Well, then. He's pretty scary. Tell your friends and George. So that we can all become fiends and then we can hang out together. And I think that's all the business I have for this week. Hmm. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Yeah. Oh, I do actually. Tell me. Okay, it's real short. So this is for our patrons. Yes. Our uh, post-mortem episodes Mm -hmm. are just a little behind this week. So we will get them. uh, We have two that will be posted by the time this episode comes out. Excellent. Yeah, we do we do them immediately after record recording, but sometimes mm-hmm. it takes a little time to get the video stuff together. Yep. But um, we didn't forget you guys. Yeah. We promise. So stay tuned. Yes, and I have a movie slated for this month, for real, this time. The month's almost over. <laughs> November isn't almost over. It's almost over. No, it isn't. Feels like it. It's already the 14th. But it's not over yet. There's 16 days left. Sorry. Well, by this, by the time it comes out, it's... I guess so. We're still going to do it. I really want to watch Thanksgiving, too. Okay. Anyway, good stuff. (laughs) You did it. All right, then. On with the show. So we have reached the month of Thanksgiving. No, this isn't our Thanksgiving episode. I have a case for that. And yes, patrons, we plan to have a 30-minute Thanksgiving, too, that I just talked about. So don't worry, because killer turkeys are really funny. Mm -hmm. Like, really funny. (laughs) We laughed really hard at that one. So pretty excited (laughs) about that. And no, we are not going to talk about actual Thanksgiving this week. But the holiday did get me thinking. I thought that seeing as the traditional Thanksgiving stories are pretty complicated, they're usually like a really rosy depiction of what life was like back then. And Mm -hmm. uh, they leave out all the parts where we, I don't know, murdered the shit out of a bunch of indigenous people with smallpox blankets and guns. Instead, we just talk about planting corn. So nice. So I thought instead this week we might take a dip into the rich and beautiful world of indigenous North American folklore. So tonight we will be talking about Swift Runner and the Wendigo. Mm. Yes. Incidentally, the Wendigo is also my favorite folkloric monster. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Pretty scary. The Wendigo is born from an act of desperation, the kind of desperation that only happens when it is very, very cold. The Wendigo is giant and ravenous, with a large gaping maw and sharp, empty rib cage. 
The worst part about it, though, is that the more it eats, the hungrier it gets. It can lay dormant for years and years, patiently waiting for the right moment to strike. And when that moment arrives, you better pray it hasn't come for you. The Wendigo lives in the most frightening of places, a place from which there is no escape. Once the Wendigo awakens, it tears through this place with unimaginable patience and force, creating a path of nightmares and consuming everything it sees. It is a place so close and familiar, yet so mysterious and difficult to explore that only a fraction of it is known to humankind. But how do you get there? You may be asking yourself. How do you get to the place where the Wendigo lives? This place is not hard to find. In fact, you may not even know that you're going, but still find yourself there. To find it, just take a deep breath and close your eyes. For the Wendigo lives in the most inescapable place of all, your mind. Mm. I know. I love a good setup. Oh, no. So the Wendigo, in case you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about here, is a terrifying creature that comes from the folklore of the indigenous tribes of the Midwestern United States and Canada, specifically a number of Algonquin-speaking peoples, including the Ojibwe, the Salto, the Cree, the Nascapi, and the Inu. And if I pronounced any of them wrong, a thousand million apologies. Please tell me how to pronounce it, and I will make a correction. The source of the English word Wendigo is the Ojibwe word Windigo, which is way cuter. Mm -hmm. It's spelled W-I-I-N-D-I-G-O-O. Yeah. I like that one better. Like, why do we get rid of that? Windigo. Way better. So in the Cree language, though, it is Witikau or Witiko, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, this is important because we will be talking more about the Cree people later in this episode. I know you have a lot on the Cree, and the case that we're actually going to talk about is from the Cree people. Also, fun fact, the plural form of Windigo is Windigoag. <laughs> okay. W-I-N-D-I-G-O-A-G. Windigoag. Just in case you find yourself faced with a whole bunch of these things, you're probably going to want to recount that story, and we want you to be able to do it correctly. So, Thank you. You're very welcome. Though it is unlikely that you will do that because Windigo are solitary creatures who seldom are seen in groups and prefer to hunt alone. Mm. Yeah. So. Definitely talk about it if you see a big group of them because it's rare. But as is the case with any form of mythology, certain circumstances brought it into prevalence. So before we get into what the Wendigo is and what it does, I think it's important to know what kind of world it lived in. And this week, our story, which we will get to in the second half of this episode, takes place in Canada. You know how we love Canada. Mm -hmm. So Leslie, why don't you give us a little history lesson? Why might the indigenous people of Canada have, I don't know, an extreme distaste for people who are greedy and insatiable? People who perhaps take what is not theirs without caring about what kind of lives they ruin in the process. Oh, I can tell you about that. I thought you might. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so since our story takes place in 1878, I'm going to kind of do the climate of Canada like up until that point in time. So like we'll get to where we are in our story. Yes, when we get to the portion of the story that tells about Swift Runner, we will be in 1878. Okay, cool. So, two years prior in Canada, the federal government passed the Indian Act policy. The uh, Indian Act is a Canadian federal law that governs all matters regarding Indian status bans, which were once called tribes, the Indian reserves, and was passed as law in 1876 and still remains a Canadian law to this day. Really? 
The policy has been amended several times, but it's something that many Indigenous and non-Indigenous people feel like should be done away with entirely, but it's a little bit more complicated than just getting rid of it. Okay. So in order to better understand the climate of the Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, we have to go back 100 years. And I'll try to keep this somewhat brief. (laughs) But it's very interesting. Please, give us 100 years of history. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so to our Canadian listeners... I think I boiled this down pretty well, but sure come at me and, and correct me if needed because we didn't learn Canadian history yeah, in we school. Don't, we don't learn Canadian history in our school. We had our own um, indigenous people to think about when we were oh God, And to school. think about so incorrectly. Yeah. Um, but we do want to know. And um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. if you need to give us any kind of corrections or updates or anything, we are happy to hear them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the funny things about this story, though, is that Canada was looking at what America was doing to the indigenous people. And well, but they saw how, you know, we had like broken out into a war with them Mm -hmm. and it was so costly. We were losing so much money. For sure. And it just was not going well that they were like, we don't want to do that. So they did something else, which is not really any better. We're not going to do anything good, but we will do something a little different. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So. In 1755, Canada was not Canada yet. The French and British had come over, but the French were kind of winning over the region at this point. The French were trying to make friends with the indigenous people and solidified some deep trade routes with uh, many indigenous nations. The French uh, also came with Jesuits, and besides making trade allies, they also wanted to convert them. Of course. Yep. At this time, the Seven Years' War had started, which was between Great Britain and France fighting over world supremacy, which meant that the British were not about to let France take over this new region entirely. So the British government, in hopes of gaining indigenous allies, created the Indian Department under the branch of the British military. The British promised to protect indigenous people in the lands if they promised to fight with them against the French. They agreed, and the British won the war. And uh, and then, you know, like, Fran- obviously there's, like, French colonies there. So, like, they kept some lands, but they had to, like, seed over, like, yeah. these other ones. Right. So King George III was pretty delighted about this. I'm and sure. in <laughs> And in 1763, he put forth a treaty to solidify this new relationship and give guidelines for European settlement of Aboriginal territories. And the treaty is called the Royal Proclamation. And it states that Aboriginal title has existed and continues to exist and that all land is considered Aboriginal land until ceded by the treaty. The proclamation forbade settlers from claiming land from the Aboriginal occupants unless it had first bought by the crown and then sold to settlers. So only the crown can buy land from the First Nations. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. I wonder how much they kind of actually did that. (laughs) Well, so originally – so right. So they – one, basically, it's confusing because at first I was like, why Why is this even drawn up? Like, don't, so they just got their, they just get to keep their land. But I guess that's not actually what happened. They, the British decided like, okay, we, we won everything. Just of so course, you know. This like is, they do. We, we just came over and now all of this is ours. But, um, but here you can have these lands, kind of what we ended up doing. So they were like, here's a bunch of land that you can have. This is where you can hunt. You can be yourselves. You can do all this. And the crown owns that land. So if any any of the settlers that are there, any of the colonists oh. want it, they can't just take it from you. We have to buy it from you first. And then that's land that 
the colonists can then, like, purchase from us. So they make, like, money. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it was also a way for them to just be in good favor. Like, it was just one extra step, too. Right. But they they were still being like, you can just have that land, though. We were taking all this other stuff. It has a very reservation-y feel to it. It is. Like, you can live on a little, this little thing. Yeah. Essentially, they created reservations. Okay. Kind of what happened. So there was a meeting between the First Nations and the European settlers to approve the Royal Proclamation. The British brought the paperwork and the First Nations had made this like really beautiful quahog shell belt, kind of like fabric-y looking. Mm. And this was their sign of peace and also like what they would bring to like as a treaty in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, just their sign of respect. The problem with this proclamation, however, is that it was designed without Aboriginal input. And of I don't course. think that they realized that Britain just declared a monopoly over their lands. Oh, I'm sure they didn't. I'm mm-hmm. sure it was in a lot of language yeah. that they did not understand at all. And I also don't think that they realized how opinionated the European settlers were going to be oh, on I'm their sure. way of life. So after the American Revolution and the War of 1812, which the British army had the indigenous people fight with them for, mm-hmm. right? The country of Canada began to take shape, and the nation-to-nation relationship began to take shape as well. The Indian Department moved from the military branch to the civilian branch of the government, which I think they said was like um, like Ontario and Quebec area. So now the Canadian government is starting to look into this department more, and in 1844, they decided that some changes needed to be made. And those changes included a new treaty called the uh, Bagot Commission. And this treaty acts as a predecessor to the Indian Act. It was named after Charles Bagot, who was the Governor General of North America. He acts as the stand-in for the Crown, which is the Queen at this point. The treaty basically says that the Indians need to be civilized and that the assimilationist policy, including the establishment of boarding schools far away from children's communities, should be utilized. Canadians uh, will probably recognize this as the residential schools. Residential schools were set up by the Canadian government and administered by churches to assimilate Indigenous children into the Western idea of society. Children were forbidden to speak their language, practice their culture, or even see their siblings who were sometimes in the same school with them. And as with all these kinds of schools, there was rampant sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. And this is something that Canada is still, like, uncovering more information about today. And we will cover this topic. More than one person has asked us to cover it, and we have plans to do so. It's big. It's a lot. It's Mm -hmm. pretty devastating. And I personally... I think it's going to not be one case. It's going to be like three cases. Yeah. So uh, we will get there. I promise, Canada. So in 1857, the responsibility for Indian affairs was passed from Great Britain to the province of Canada. So now they're like, we we don't need to deal with this anymore. You guys are like starting Mm. to form so you can just take this over. And this will (laughs) – there's so much I learned about Canada, so this will make sense to any of the listeners. This is before they're a confederation at this point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's still the province of Canada. They'll be like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't Got know. Got it. <laughs> so to me, this means that the settlers had more power to make horrible decisions against the indigenous people. Of they course. were like, oh, the crown isn't like controlling us. It's also the military doesn't have any involvement. We're just like, like two white men in a building. Like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. One of which was passing the Gradual Civilization of Indian Tribes Act. Great title. God, it's not wordy at all. (laughs) The act furthered the desire to assimilate indigenous people to Western culture. 
if an indigenous man, 21 or older, wanted to be considered a citizen of the province of Canada, they would have to prove they were free of debt, could speak English or French, and were of good moral character. Essentially, an indigenous man could apply to be a citizen and would of no his longer, own country and would be cool. no longer an Indian. And he would thus acquire the right to vote and 20 acres of land. They would like give him land, like he his own land, his own land. <laughs> what kind of bullshit, arrogant person do you have to be to do that kind of thing? I don't know, but they thought this was great. And I think it's because they came over and they were like, oh, these people want to be civilized. Like that's how mm-hmm. some of them were thinking. Yeah, of course. And they were just, yeah, it was terrible. So in 1858, a year after the act, Many indigenous nations were like, what the fuck is this? And they got together and they discussed their concern for the excessive control that Great Britain had over their land and lives. They were like, this is not going in the right direction. Unfortunately, the Brits were not looking to slow down and were only trying to conquer more and more land. And by getting the indigenous people to become citizens, they would have more control over them and could take their land since they were no longer, they wouldn't be safe under like this royal proclamation That's a theme. Yeah. This was also during the time, so because we're, I think our story takes place like more Western, but this is them now trying to move from like East to West, kind of like we were. We were like conquering the Western side of things now. Indeed. Um, this is, the, our story will occur in central Alberta. Okay. So as we were kind of saying before, this, it didn't make sense at the time for any of these indigenous people to try to become citizens. Like, what was the point of it? No, what is that doing for yeah. them? I mean, like, I, it, it, I at know. this point, it really wasn't doing much for them other than just becoming like a white man. They were, yeah, which, which, which they thought, which like the British colonists were like, why wouldn't you want to be a white man? Because they're not. Right, exactly. <sighs> And so literally only one indigenous man out of that first like year or two volunteered to become a citizen, mm-hmm. but it, it, he wasn't even like approved. And, and I actually think it was like his tribe that was like, come back. You're yeah, not doing that. We don't like that. Stop yeah. that. <laughs> uh, so in 1869, the Gradual Enfranchisement Act was put into place. The British government, feeling the pushback, wanted to speed up assimilation They were confused as to why no one wanted to be like them. Uh, To do this, they passed laws that required indigenous people to give up their Indian status and and become Canadian citizens in order to obtain a degree, uh, vote, or become a clergyman. People were still not jumping at the opportunity, so they found ways around it. For instance, an indigenous man who had joined the military would return and find would return home and find out that they were conveniently made a Canadian citizen just oh. because they had already joined their military, losing their Indian status. And then, if any Indian or uh, Indigenous person wanted to join the military, they would have to also lose their status. But if you were already in the military, you just lost it. And Damn. if they were married, then their wife and children would also have lost their status. So, like, this is also big for. Um, Women in indigenous tribes, like they, as we know in history anyway, they just had no rights at all. And so it was really just up to like whatever the man did. (sighs) The federal government was now requiring the proof of native blood by way of blood quantum. Blood quantum is a way of measuring how much Indian blood you have. If you have a quarter of Indian blood, you could secure your tribal identity. They can't do blood work back then. How are they deciding this? They were, like, able to figure this out. Just, like, family lines? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. This, like, all get kind of gets into it. The hope was that indigenous people would start to marry outside their tribes and their bloodline would 
would thin out and eventually dilute their blood enough to become indistinguishable from the rest of us and essentially eliminate the indigenous tribes, Mm -hmm. which would just make everything easier for these newly settled Europeans. Many of the tribal nations adopted this method to secure native bloodlines in their tribes as well. This is a problem, though, because it means that the tribes would now turn away their own people if their blood wasn't clean, like, quote-unquote, clean enough. So it was like, and it just feels horrible because we put that idea in yeah. their head. Yeah, and also, like, what if you are one of those people who are just kind of in the middle? Will no one take you? What is, or I guess it's, Canada wants them. But they, yeah, they want them as citizens. Okay, mm-hmm. and so they have no choice so you but would to have, like, do um, that. So some of them— it, Different tribes have different amounts, and so, but the, I think Canada's, the government, I think, was saying if you are, if you have a quarter of Native blood, then you can have um, Native status, Mm -hmm. and that was one that, like, a lot of the tribes also took over, but sometimes it might be, like, half. It would just depend. Oh, my God. This is such, like, eugenics beginnings. Yeah, it's 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 tough. And then it's hard because when some of the members— maybe either were forced into citizenship or Mm -hmm. became citizens, like say a woman, an indigenous woman married um, a Canadian man or a non-indigenous person, the woman would lose her status just automatically. And then all her children and grandchildren would have lost their status too. So now they would have to prove that they have native blood and hopefully they have almost like enough. With that, is what is what my understanding right. is, and this is where I'd like clarification too, but okay. this is what my understanding was. And I suppose that could then hurt your relationship with your family. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because they might not be able to get seats on their boards and have like certain rights Ugh. and— and because then with this royal proclamation, if there's no more Native people left, then that whole proclamation just goes out the door. Yep. Too. But now let's jump back to the Indian Act in 1876. Okay. As we can see, there was quite a lot of horribleness happening. The Indian Act would essentially be a combination of the other acts we discussed, plus some more restrictions. If indigenous veterans wanted to collect aid or benefits, they would have to become Canadian citizens. To have any rights in a courtroom, you would have to become a citizen. It was illegal for indigenous people to drink alcohol, dance, leave their lands without permission. Why? Because they just were, they were like, if you want these rights, you have to become a citizen. Oh. They also, like, were restricted from practicing their, like, ceremonies and, of course. like, tribal dances, too, like, for anybody to see. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I know, like, I think if they came out, they weren't allowed to wear, like, headdress. Their, their, like, yeah, dress no, that sounds right. Attire. They have to look like. Mm-hmm. And so just the idea of leaving your tribe to become a citizen was also, like, very humiliating, too, because if you decided that that's, like, something that you had to do, Mm -hmm. um, or even if it was, like, maybe if you fell in love with a non-Indigenous person and wanted to marry them and that made you had to leave your tribe, Mm -hmm. then, like, you also had to give up your name and choose a Christian name. Yep. And they would just, they would end up losing any of their rights or affiliation to their tribe, too. So that's just horrible and sad. It's very Ellis Islandy. Yeah. So it was just a weird time. And it was, I mean, it, and it still is, but uh, specifically at that point, any of the, like the colonists in that area that maybe didn't really know what was really happening on the government end of things, they were at least just being brainwashed that these indigenous tribes and and these first nations that were there were just all 
barbaric and dangerous. And they needed and this. They this needed was for this. The, their good, their mm-hmm. well-being. And we're saving their souls if we of can course. convert them to Christianity. Mm, terrible. I hate it so much. I know. Horrible, horrible. So, yeah, so then today the Indian Act is still in place, and it's gone through a ton of amendments, mm-hmm. and it has been talked about them, like, just, like, getting rid of it, but they've ingrained it so much into their into like the Canadian laws and governments, like I, I don't know, they it's just so far into everything huh. that they that they believe and I don't know all their policies that if they were to rip it out, basically I think what would happen is that they would almost negate the royal proclamation, which would then make all of the Indians just become Canadian citizens, which doesn't sound like terrible, but they would essentially have to assimilate to Canadian now? culture. There's that's still what, laws that say they have to assimilate to well, other Well, that's culture? what I think. I th- that can't be right. I know. Well, the, I was just listening to a podcast about this, and the girl was talking about why it's still, it's it's like a hot topic. Like, they haven't been able to figure out a better way to, like, end this. And huh. it's just stupid because I don't understand, like, why can't they just— It sounds easy. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm not Canadian. I don't know, I don't know I don't what's know going what on the, there. Yeah. I we've not been any better to our indigenous people. Mm-hmm. We've, we've been absolutely terrible. Yeah. So I'm not feels, coming from a place of, like, well, we've done it right because we sure right. haven't. But right. feels very unclear. And then one of the things that they, um, in this podcast I listened to, and actually I'll probably link it because it was very— Educational. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, uh, she was saying, the, the one of the hosts, who is an indigenous woman. Okay. Mm-hmm, she actually had to claim her status. So oh apparently in Canada, you get like a card. So okay. she, her grandmother wasn't, um, didn't have the status. She like lost it when she married a non-indigenous person. Mm-hmm. So now she was always told like, you're an Indian, you're an Indian. You know, mm-hmm. this is what you are. This is your tribe. And so then um, when she was allowed to get her status, she had to, like, go and prove that this is who she was. So now, like, they, she carries this card, which she always says, like, makes her feel weird. She yeah. was like, I wanted it, but also, like, it's weird that I have to show it. Yeah, that's super weird. And, like, prove myself to people. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. I hate it a lot. I know. God. Strange. But, yeah, so that's – so in 1878, it just wasn't – wasn't well. The the indigenous tribes were realizing that this royal proclamation was, like, almost gone to shit. And they're mad about it because they're like, this was a treaty and, like, we agreed upon right, it. Right, and, right, like, right. Why are you trying to, like, undermine it? <laughs> so bizarre. Being shady. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, a lot of heavy history. Yeah. And I promise you guys I'm going to talk about a monster for a little while, but that stuff is super important and it is going to tie into everything else that comes back around. Oh, great. It, for sure, yeah. So keep it I in your mind. I got so nervous I did all no. that history and it wasn't going to fit. No, not at all. No, 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 no. We're and gonna... I learned a lot and I feel way smart. <laughs> I liked learning more about it too. All our fiends like to learn. That's why they're here. So yeah, I'm going to go in a different direction and then it's going to be a real fun when Great. everything marries together in okay. a little bit. Okay. So back to the Wendigo. So we're talking about a monster created through indigenous folklore. Now folklore is usually used to explain something. We know that from any kind of mythology. It's usually explaining some kind of phenomenon, some kind of thing that happens that we we can't possibly figure out why. And so, okay, it must be this creature, this divine moment, this thing. Not always. I mean, like, I'm not going to 
put down anybody's beliefs. But historically, there is a lot of that there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to keep that in our mind too. So I also know that you guys are probably dying to know what this thing looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't worry, I'm about to give you a detailed description. But please recognize that this is folklore we're talking about. So a great many different versions of it exist. And with time and retelling, it has morphed somewhat from its original intended form. Just like anything else, myths tend to snowball. Several indigenous tribes, um, even amongst themselves, have slightly different versions of this terrifying creature. None of which look like the monster in the movie Antlers, which okay. is our most recent Wendigo um, movie. There are more than, a, more than a few, actually. But this is the most recent. It's Guillermo del Toro, so probably is amazing. Cannot wait to see it. But now I'm kind of mad at it because I know that it isn't folklorically accurate. Mm. <laughs> and we all know what I'm like when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> Insufferable is probably the most appropriate word for it. Remember how mad I was at the bird taxidermy in Twilight? Yeah. That's when Leslie's always like, why are you like this? (laughs) I don't know. I can't help it. (laughs) Anyway, so traditionally, the Wendigo is a tall humanoid creature. Remember that. And it is usually referred to as a giant, reaching around 15 feet in height, which, as we all know, is like just above the sweet spot for terrifying creatures like shadow people and slender man which i think is usually eight to 14 feet yep, seven to 14 seven to 14 yeah so it's like just outside of that which is why it gets giant status okay not just kind Tall. of big yeah so, <laughs> the wendigo is also described as painfully thin with angular protruding bones and yellowish or gray skin with patches of matted or sparse hair or fur The Wendigo's mouth is ragged and sometimes completely skinless, raw, and bloody. Ew. Super gross. Don't worry, the photo suite's going to be be fun this week. Yep. Needs some validation. It 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 does really need some validation. You are correct. Sometimes the Wendigo's horrifying mouth will have patches of skin just like still kind of clinging to it. Savage. It's disgusting. (laughs) It always smells rancid. Like death, they say. So it always smells like it's rotting. Okay, and because it still has rotting flesh. Exactly. On it. Yeah. And the height thing is it varies. So there are some tribes that say it's a giant, and there are some that just are. It's like people size. Okay. It varies. <laughs> seven to seven to yeah. I guess. Well, I guess like five, five, five yeah. to fifteen <laughs> to fifteen feet. <laughs> um, but what I. What I think that evolution is, and I'll get to it in a minute, is that that it grows. Um, I think it starts people size and then gets bigger. I gotcha. Um, but we'll get there in a second. So it smells like death. It's terrible. And it looks as though it has recently clawed its way out of the grave. And by that, I mean it's very dirty and skeletal. The most frequently cited description, like a formal description of the Wendigo, comes from a man named Basil, probably, H. Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, um, which is convenient because our story comes from Canada. And he says, quote, The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separation of the flesh. And separation means, oh, it's really gross, suffering from infection or abscess to the point where it is leaking pus. Mm -hmm. It really drives home how awful that mouth is in a hurry. Mm -hmm. 
The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption, end quote. So what we have here in the traditional explanation, like at the base, is a big zombie, right? That's a zombie, basically. Super skinny, bones coming out, dead colored flesh. It's falling off their bones. Zombie. But a lot of illustrations of the Wendigo that you're going to see now will look pretty different. They show the Wendigo as what looks to be a deer-human-skeletal hybrid, the antlers, hence the movie Antlers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what this looks like, and it's hard without pictures, but there will be a photo suite. Uh, Don't worry, I'll have plenty of pictures of it. It stands on two legs, and those legs are deer legs, but they are positioned in a way like if you have like a a satyr or a fawn, so like pan, so Mm -hmm. they're like upright deer legs with the deer hoof on it, obviously. And then it will go into like a really big hulking torso that has deer fur, but exposed, like an exposed rib cage with flesh hanging off of it. Okay. And the rib cage looks like a human rib cage. So it's vertical, you know, it's like in the vertical mm-hmm. position like ours would be. And it looks to me more the shape of our rib cage. They also have very long arms that extend all the way to the ground and end in like a humanish looking hand that is covered in fur and ending in long, sharp claws. And then it has a deer's neck that ends in either a deer head or just an exposed deer skull with fur still clinging to it in place. Mm. And then it culminates in impressively large antlers. The head will also have glowing eyes and a blood-stained mouth filled with razor-sharp teeth, which is different from a deer who is a herbivore and has like a mouthful of real flat teeth. Mm -hmm. So pretty different. Very different. Than its traditional zombie form, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I like it. I'm an Antlers fan. Deer skulls have an eerie and yet elegant appearance. They're impressive and yet frightening. It's cool and spooky. I have several deer skulls. They're cool. Uh, I totally get it. Unfortunately, it's completely wrong. But where did this version of the Wendigo come from? Well, the long and the short of it is simply that we really don't know entirely. Over time, Things like this just kind of evolve. And this one evolved more into a cryptid Bigfoot-type monster than the original spirit it was supposed to be. Because as you will see in a few minutes, there are different viewpoints, whether a Wendigo is like a spirit that can inhabit something or it is actually just a free-roaming creature. But it was never a deer. So that's fun. Most Wendigo scholars will cite Algernon Blackwood's 1910 novella, The Wendigo, as the source of this evolution. Blackwood mixes the Wendigo's intended appearance with that of Pan, which is a mythological fawn, so think Pan's Labyrinth, that Mm -hmm. guy, and then also a, quote, general personification of the forest. So that's why when we have created this, like, forest creature version of it, that's where this comes from, because this guy put all this stuff together And the story, the novella is like this man that's obsessed with the forest and goes out among these creatures, and it's this deer animal thing. And the novella was quite popular Mm -hmm. and created a shift in the Wendigo's folklore, which, in my opinion, does water down its actual purpose, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to get there to explain. A lot of people also cite the scary stories to tell in the dark story, the Wendigo, which is too recent to be where it actually came from, but I appreciate it, and that may be the first place that a lot of people saw it. Because, you know, that was pretty popular. Anyway, so there's a there's a very good reason that the Wendigo should actually remain humanoid in its appearance. And that reason is that in most of its origin stories, it begins as a person, just an average everyday human. And 
This is what sets the Wendigo apart from all other cryptids and monsters. Everything else is just, you know, lives in the wild and is what it is. But the Wendigo, a lot of times, is deeply rooted in a person. Mm, which is terrifying. It's very scary. I think it makes it scarier. Yeah, 100%. For sure. The Wendigo is a lot of the time said to be the very spirit of greed and desperation, specifically the kind that will enter a human body and make it do unspeakable things. So again, we have an event where, say, something unspeakable happens, and we'll get to what that is specifically, and then it's so difficult to explain that you have to find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. So the Wendigo spirit is ravenous, blind to human emotions, incredibly strong and insatiable. Now, the reason its mouth is seen so frequently to be raw and skinless is that its hunger is so intense that it chews away its own lips. Mm. Yeah. And then you see just raw, bare, bright red gums, teeth, and tissue that just gnash away, always trying to eat. And it only wants to eat one thing, human flesh. We see that we're going in a distinctly cannibal direction. Right. So that's right. The Wendigo forces its victims to consume other humans at a vicious pace. Now, if we are to believe it is a spirit, that is what enters a person and makes them eat another person. Um, and, and it makes them do this at like a breakneck speed and often to its own, the person's own loved ones. But no matter how much it eats, the Wendigo, no matter how much it kills, it's never truly fed. It constantly wastes away, destroying its life and the lives of, of, of everyone it loves, but for absolutely nothing. Hmm. Yeah. And that's definitely part of it. Part of it is that no matter how many people it eats, it's never going to be full. That isn't what's going to fix it or whatever. Now, some tribes say also on the other side of it that the Wendigo is like a wandering malevolent spirit in search of a host. And some say that the Wendigo, uh, the spirit is created when a human is driven to a desperate act of cannibalism, an act we now refer to as survival cannibalism. Mm -hmm. So think like that movie Alive, the plane that went down in the Andes. If you're starving and your friend is dead, you, you might eat your friend. Right. And some tribes say that when that specific act occurs, it generates a Wendigo spirit. Oh. Right. And in the days before Western civilization had developed across the United States and Canada and winters were quite tough, supplies would become scarce and people would frequently freeze or starve to death. Now, because of this, tales of survival cannibalism were rampant. They, it, it happened. U European Americans and Canadians also are not immune to this. In fact, they were probably worse off than the rest because they didn't know how to survive like the indigenous people did. And they fell victim to it a lot more times than we probably would like to admit, or that is, you know, in, ingrained in our specific culture. Mm -hmm. The events at Donner Pass, so like the Donner family, if you know that story, which we can tell at some point in time, if you guys are interested, let me know. This is not an isolated incident. We all know that when there is no food and people are dying, humans will often do what they have to do to survive, because at our core, we are animals. And when that happens, you have a Wendigo. And it feeds on your greed and desperation. So every time it eats a person, it's not really getting that. It's just getting the greed and desperation that you have. That's what it's feeding on. Mm. So the host, the person that it has inhabited, will grow bigger, but only in height. It will only get taller and just kind of stretch out what weight is still on its body. It never gains substance. So it will get just thinner and taller and thinner and taller and desperately hungry. Hmm. So that's where you get, it starts human size and it ends up 15 feet in height, but it's not gained any weight. Okay. So you can see all like the skeleton and stuff. Anyway, 
there are other versions of the story that say the Wendigo itself, so that means it's not a spirit, it is, it is a human now, it's a transformed human, so not a spirit at all. What we know is a Wendigo, some tribes say, um, is, a, is a person that finds themselves forced into cannibalism by desperation, but then they kind of go feral. They kind of just go to the woods and they rely more on cannibalism. They just continue on that path. Once they have started, they can't turn back. And then the folklore comes in and says that this person's heart will then turn to ice and they will wander the land in search of more people to consume, growing um, and taller and becoming more ragged and wild as they go. So this would be like a person does this to themselves, mm-hmm. not a spirit. So they're two two like kind of distinct origin stories that come about with the same result. Okay. Now, a third version of this story says that when the Wendigo spirit is created, so this act of survival cannibalism happens and the spirit have poof, there's a Wendigo. They say that then it kind of like goes up into the atmosphere and is a free agent. It has not entered the person that committed this act. It's just a thing that they made that can then inhabit anybody that it encounters along its way with no discretion. Now this, this is kind of a key explanation because it meant that during the colder months, anybody was at risk. This could happen to literally anyone with no reason. Though it was said that it would more likely happen to a person who is vulnerable. So someone who is like really low on food and cold. But I find that to be interesting because that's when you're like, oh, well, no one is immune. We have to explain the fact that this kind of stuff can just kind of happen anywhere at any time, not just to a person who has already committed this act. Right. That's that scary idea of um, like being possessed by exactly. a demon. That too. is exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. We're all vulnerable, but if you are either lacking faith mm-hmm. or already kind of going down the wrong path, you're mm-hmm. going to be more vulnerable to, to getting this yeah. spirit in you. And also that opens the doors to any time that kind of survival cannibalistic act happens, you can say, well, this person has been inhabited by a Wendigo. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get, that kind of locks in after some time to the folklore that like it gets in you and then you do these things and that's why you do them. Mm -hmm. I think it probably took a little time to get to that, but for the most part, the stories about a Wendigo go along that line. So when a person is taken over by the Wendigo, when this happens, they suddenly develop unexplained, ravenous hunger, specifically for human flesh. They just really crave, they, all they want to do is eat people. And they'll often kill and consume their entire family and then wander away and eat anyone else they encounter in like a horrific trail of death and gore. And unfortunately, this has happened. It's documented. People have done this. They've consumed their whole family and then gone on and killed other people. And whether you would like to prescribe to the belief that an evil spirit came in and made them do that or not is kind of up to you. According to the tradition, the only cure for a person who has been taken over by the Wendigo is death. Mm. They will continue to kill and eat people until they themselves are killed. Well, I guess that's what we do to animals, right? They get a taste of human flesh. I guess. We have to put them down because yeah. they just won't be able to Put them down. It. All they want to do is eat people forever. <laughs> Maybe that's an animal Wendigo. Maybe that's the deer mm. Wendigo. There it is. I don't know. I just like that deer mm. one better. Anyway. Now, 
Um, I'll just let you continue. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it just sounds, I guess when I keep thinking of like, they've they've eaten their whole family, it just Mm -hmm. seems like that's so much meat. But then how long did that take to happen? And obviously it's cold, so they could probably preserve the meat out there. It probably wasn't going bad. Interesting that you say that. (laughs) I'm not going to answer you right now, but I'm glad that you said that. So people can have that in their head um, because I will address it later. Okay. (laughs) So to tie back into everything you said in our history lesson earlier, there is one more description of a Wendigo that directly links to that history. And it's not brought up a lot or used in the traditional descriptions of it. And so initially, I hadn't even thought to include it in my description. But I find it so fascinating after the things you said that I wanted to put it in. So, quote, The Wendigo can also describe movements and events with similarly negative effects. According to Professor Chris Chris Shedler, the figure of the Wendigo represents, quote, consuming forms of exclusion and assimilation through which groups dominate other groups. Mm. This application allows Native Americans to describe colonialism and its agents as Wendigo wag. This says Wendigos. They said it wrong. Since the process of colonialism ejected Natives from their land and threw the natural world out of balance. Mm. So then all of the things you spoke about happening, they could prescribe to Wendigo activity. Right. Okay. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting, yeah. So, not frequently talked about, but in my opinion, like, way more fascinating. Right, right. So, anyway, that's that's all some pretty dark stuff. Yeah. Thankfully, the Wendigo is not the only indigenous folklore out there. There is so much, and it's all so interesting. So, Leslie, do you know any, like, nicer indigenous folklore type stories? Just, like, off, like, off the top of your head. Just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I know a few. I figured you might. I thought this sounded like something you would just know. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, do you want to hear? I'll read one because they're they're cute, full stories. Love it. Um, do you want to hear like either a creation story or like um, like a fun? Um, they remind me of like parables. Like I want that one. That one. You okay. got so excited when you talked about that one. Well, because I was trying to. Do, yeah. <laughs> I want that one. I just like the ending of this story. It's Bring it on. Okay. Lay it on us. This one's called The Flying Wonder. Yeah, clearly want to hear about The Flying Wonder. Yeah, That's great. Right? And uh, this one I found in Cree legends and myths and traditional Indian stories. So nativelanguage.org. A certain man and his wife had a beautiful daughter and three sons who were excellent hunters. The girl was so beautiful that she attracted many suitors, all of whom her father dismissed because they could not surpass his sons in hunting. Okay. One day, while his sons were out hunting, a stranger entered the camp and said to the father, I should like to remain with you and work for your daughter's hand. A stranger? What's your name? Flying Wonder. Yeah, you, we win. You can be <laughs> in my family. Your name is Flying Wonder. Mm-hmm. Well, you may stay, said the father, but you cannot marry her unless you excel my sons in the chase. Okay. The flying wonder lived with them for several months, hunting with the three youths and killing even more game than they did. Having proved his skills, he asked the eldest son for permission to marry his daughter. 
the youth consulted his parents, and the entire family sat in council over the matter. Okay. He calls himself the Flying Wonder, said one, but... (laughs) When is he going to (laughs) fly? But we neither know who he really is nor where he comes from. What does that matter? Replied another. He has shown himself an excellent hunter. They decided to let him marry their sister. Mm-mm. Without delay, he set up a tent under a large a large pine tree close by, and the girl moved into it. So at least she stayed close to the family. In a tree. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> I need you to fly soon. No, no, no. A tent under a oh, large okay. pine tree. It was like, we're going to live in this tree. <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't shown you my flying wonder yet, but mm-hmm. I swear it's there. They were no sooner married, however, than flying wonder seemed to change. He treated his wife so cruelly that at her, that at last her brothers became indignant and said to their father, we shall have to get rid of him. The next time he abuses her, let us kill him. I like yeah, these brothers. kill him. The very next evening, they heard their sister sobbing and the voice of her husband mocking her. Ew. Inflamed with anger, they rushed over and hewed him to pieces. Then they scattered his body in every direction, abandoned the camp, and erected a new one several miles away. Being now short of food, the three brothers went hunting again and sighted a large herd of caribou, which is like reindeer, and it's yes. very delicious. Oh, is it now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have you had some caribou? Uh, yeah, I've had like a reindeer burger. And, Have you? Yeah. Where? Um, they had it at like a local, um, uh, like a, a burger place by us, and they, when they hunt sometimes they have like these rare they have like camels sometimes and uh, no thank you no yeah but they they had this one and i was like oh i want to try it once i want to eat a reindeer it was good <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> <laughs> it was ethically sourced <laughs> it's fine we're not going to talk about how you ate christmas it's fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so they approached them cautiously and were almost the caribou of course. Um, <laughs> they approached them cautiously and were almost within bowshot when suddenly a raven flew over their heads and croaked. The caribou then looked up in alarm and fled. Uh-oh. The same thing happened the next day and the day following. At last, they understood its meaning. The spirit of their dead brother-in-law had become a raven and was avenging itself on them. Oh, shit. They tried several times to shoot the bird, but it always flew beyond the range of their arrows. Soon, the family was starving. Yeah. The youngest son proposed a device saying, lay out my body as if I were dead and abandon the camp. The raven will think one of us has already died of starvation and it will fly down to devour me. Ew. So he like is sacrificing himself. They're not carrying birds. What are you doing? What do you mean? Ravens aren't scavengers. Well, but this one clearly was like coming. Like he thought that like they they assume right now that it is the spirit of. Okay. All right. See, I get mad at weird things. I'm like, no, they're like rat, they're like hunting birds. Yeah. They're not anyway. They have other myths about ravens too in their tribe. I mean, Santa Claus had a tattletale raven originally, mm-hmm. too. We will bring yeah. back all those Christmas stories this year. Don't worry. They're really fun. Yeah. And um, that's what uh Odin has ravens. Yeah. The, yeah. the Santa Claus raven say. links into that. Yeah. <laughs> so the others agreed. They were like, sure, yeah, you can do that, bro. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> There's only you that affects. Yeah. We're fine. Um, they covered the youth with brushwood that concealed all but his face, abandoned the camp, and set up a new one some distance away. Cute. The raven appeared again, flew over their heads, crying, Kaka! And sighted like the- you do! <laughs> and sighted the pile of bushes. 
It circled above it, swooped down, settled on the ground a few yards away, and and inspected the supposed corpse. The youth made no movement, still suspicious. The raven hopped around him just beyond his reach. When even then the youth did not move, it drew closer and tried to peck out its eyes. That's what they do first. He caught it in his hands, hacked it to pieces, (gasps) and kindling a large fire, carefully burned every fragment. I hate it. Well, but this was the brother-in-law that they wanted to kill. Right, right, right. This is the flying wonder. I just don't think it's going to go well. He even collected the bones after the fire died down and pounded them into dust. He, like, thought of everything. This is shit. This is Jeffrey Dahmer level (laughs) shit. Then, satisfied that he could do no more, he followed his kingsman's track to the new camp and told them what had happened. As they sat round their fire that evening, a man entered the camp. Uh-oh. The flying wonder himself. Fuck, you just killed a bird for no reason. He said to them, you cannot kill me, <gasps> for you do not know where I conceal my heart. Oh, shit. But I repent now of my misdeeds and promise that I will conduct myself better hereafter. So, let me remarry your sister. If I what? ill-treat her again... I will tell you where my heart lies, and you can kill me. Oh, no. The family had no choice, for they were starving and could kill no game as long as he was hostile. God, this is rough. Fly Wonder kept his word and treated his wife kindly. He joined his brother-in-laws again in their hunting and filled their camp with meat. One day, they sighted a large herd of caribou, and twisting some roots, the three brothers constructed a long fence from which they suspended snares and rawhide thongs at regular intervals. Flying Wonder then suggested that they fasten an extra snare to his body and hide him in the bush. They agreed, fixed his snare, and left him in the concealment near the fence while they rounded up the herd. Every snare caught a caribou, but the snare fastened to Flying Wonder caught the biggest animal in the herd. Unable to hold it, he shouted to his companions as it dragged him away, Have I no relatives to come rescue me? (laughs) (laughs) But the three brothers were so busy slaughtering the other trapped caribou that they did not hear him, and when they looked for him afterwards, the thong had already cut him in two. Fit me together and I shall be whole again, he cried. Mm -mm. But the eldest youth said to the brothers, No, let him remain as he is. He brought this fate on himself. They left him there and skinned the caribou, still pondering what they should do. Finally, the eldest youth suggested that they should dig a deep pit and bury the head, leaving the rest of the body where it lay. So they buried the head and returned their hides and part of the meat to their camp. The next day, with fear in their hearts, they carried all the meat to their camp and hung it up to dry. Flying wonder did not come near them. Only after all the meat was dry and stored away in a cachet did they hear the raven call again, and this time his name came from high up in the sky. The brothers gazed up at the bird contentedly and said to one another, Let us not trouble ourselves about him any more. He can no longer harm us. And they added, It's never wise for a man to allow his daughter to marry a stranger. Oh, shit. Flying wonder. <laughs> I thought you were going to be chill. I know. He wasn't. But I love that the story is like, don't let your sister marry a stranger. Yeah, we why'd you do that? Person. We don't know him. Get out of here. <laughs> not going to end well. Nope. <laughs> it didn't. It did not. That was a good one. Yeah. So it's like one of their like little folklore tales. I like it. That's way more fun than Scary Wendigo. Yeah. Although, just kind of just as scary. It, yeah. It <laughs> Still dark. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. 
Now on to the scary stuff. Yeah, well, this is now on to the true crime portion. Okay. Yeah, we're going to segue into that. Now, there are a few famous historic accounts of a person taken over by a Wendigo. It's it, You can find more if you would like, but the most famous of all, and the one you're going to run into if you decide to do your own Google surfing, is the case of a man named Swift Runner. Now, before I proceed, I'm going to remind you, this is the true crime section of the story. We are no longer in folklore territory. What I am about to tell you is true and happened. These are real events. So, Swift Runner, known in his native language as Kakisi Kuchin, was a Cree hunter from what we now consider central Alberta, Canada. Now, from all accounts, it was well known that Swift was kind, gentle, and an intelligent man. He was a devoted husband and loving father and a very successful hunter and trapper. Now, because of his extensive knowledge of the land and of trapping and hunting and his affable nature, the local mounted police hired him to become one of their guides. So he is very friendly with the Canadian police in the area and all of the people at the outposts and at Fort Saskatchewan, which is where this is all going to go down which is advantageous for him and his family, obviously, for reasons you have talked about before. And um, he he is also, it's, this isn't like in every version of the story, but I think he was also friendly with some of the local like religious missionaries. He was friendly with priests and like just, just this, everybody knew him, everybody, he was kind to everyone. And he was generally accepted even by like, you know, the European people that were trying to turn everybody around. Okay. So good to be swift. So because of the good relationship he and his whole family had with local authorities and European families in the area, he frequently would guide expeditions like trapping and hunting. So he would take groups of European settlers like, okay, I'm going to take you out in the woods. We're going to hunt and bring back a bunch of stuff for your family. Or we're going to go and learn how to trap. And then you can use the fur from these animals for stuff. So he was, you know, was able to do that. And this went along pretty well for a, a while until his white friends introduced him to whiskey. Mm. Now, while his drinking problem is extreme in most accounts, but barely mentioned in a few others, in my opinion, it's safe to say that he had substantial struggles with alcohol. Because of his problems with alcohol, which then tend to make somebody kind of unruly and prone to fights, he became on the outs with the mounted police as okay. well as the elders of his tribe. Mm. So, as you mentioned before, some people were not in either group. Right. And he faced that fate. Uh, and not because of means of, like, his bloodlines, just because what he had done with his life. Uh, whiskey made him short-tempered and combative, and nobody likes that. Now, some people say that his tribe kicked him out, and some people say that he left by choice. But either way, is because he had a fight with the powers that be in his tribe that he decided he would go out on his own with his family. And so he and his family set off for their winter camp in the late fall of 1878. And then late fall, so around now, mm -hmm. around November, no one hears a single word from them again until the spring of 1879, when Swift Runner emerged from his winter camp alone. There are a few reports that say he ran to a local Catholic church, but more reports that say that he reported back to the mounted police. So 
So they say after the winter, some people say he ran to a priest and then the priest took him to the police and more say he was like, okay, can I have my job back? The winter's over. Everything's okay now. And the police said like, okay, but where is your family? You mm-hmm. left with a bunch of people and returned with but one. And Swift replied that they were all dead. He said that his eldest son had gotten sick and died and that his wife took her own life, grieving the loss of their son, and that the rest of the children had starved to death. Okay. So the mounted police found this story kind of fishy. Want to know why? Why? Because Swift Runner did not look as though he had done any starving at all. Mm. In fact, he looked well-fed and robust, much more well-fed than he did when he left. Oh, my. Yeah. So at first glance, the police think, well, maybe he's sober now. Maybe he hasn't been around whiskey. He's out at his winter home, so he's doing much better. But now they wondered. So police investigators asked Swift to take them out to his camp so they could help him remove the bodies he seems to have piled up, and he obliged. So first, Swift showed them the grave of his eldest son, which was exactly as he claimed. The remains were buried in the grave. He showed them. But what they found beyond that validated any suspicions they had. When police investigators approached Swift's fire site, so at the camp there would have been like a big, you know, like like rocked off place where they had a fire every night, they noticed that it was littered with brittle human bones. Mm. Skulls with holes in them, the long bones in our, like an arm or leg with the marrow that had been sucked out. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if you think I'm exaggerating... There are pictures of all of these things. Mm. They will be in the photo suite. The mounted police then turned to Swift in horror, like, what the fuck is this? And he admitted that a Wendigo had taken him over and that in this Wendigo fever or whatever, he had killed and eaten his five remaining children and his wife. No wonder he looked well-fed. And that would have been in the time that lapsed from, say, mid-November to mid-March. That's not that long. There are varying reports that his mother and brother were there as well. I can neither confirm nor deny that fact, only say that it has been mentioned. He said the Wendigo had entered his body a year earlier when he was on a hunting trip deep in the forest with a fellow hunter and trapper. He said that the pair got lost and his partner froze to death. Then Swift was out there for days and in desperation had consumed part of his partner in a moment of just crazed hunger and, again, desperation, as I said. This woke up the Wendigo, and it entered Swift. So we mentioned that desperation cannibalism could cause the creation of a Wendigo. Right. And so it had entered his body at that moment, but laid silent until he was out alone in the wilderness with his family. And then the thoughts began to creep in. And he was completely overcome with an obsession for consuming human flesh, an obsession he eventually gave into by slaughtering his entire family, cooking them over the fire, and eating them. Yeah. Swift told the mounted police this story in a calm, measured, and matter-of-fact manner. In his culture, this explanation was perfectly acceptable. So had he been telling tribe elders, they would have been like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Not the case with Canadian Mounted Police. Okay. Of course, 
They didn't buy a single word of this and brought him to local Fort Saskatchewan where he was sentenced to be hanged for his crimes. Unfortunately, Fort Saskatchewan was extremely inexperienced when it came to hanging and was, in fact, um, this was the first hanging they had and the first Mm. hanging of a Native person in the whole area. Okay. Big news. Most people living in the area at the time had never seen a hanging. And when the execution date arrived, which was December 20th, 1879, an enormous crowd had gathered in front of the gallows. Unfortunately, the trap door used in the gallows by the hangman had been used by the assembled crowd as firewood. Oh. Yeah, so the crowd gathered around, and they were like, they probably don't need this little trap door. Let's just burn it to keep warm while we're waiting to watch this hanging. Now, we've talked about long drop hangings before, and you need the trap door to create the drop that then breaks someone's neck, and then they're done. So Swift Runner famously turned to the executioner and offered to slit his own throat with a tomahawk. Oh, okay. It was pretty badass. Yeah. But the hangman was like, no, we can't. That's nothing. You can't, oh, you can't not? do that. Sorry. Don't do it. So instead, they just were like, can you wait here while we make a new trap door? Wow. <laughs> Which they then did. Okay. And then the hanging went as planned. Oh, man. Yep. That sounds like a town event. Like, yeah. they had everything, and then, like, something went wrong. It just, just didn't go right. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, God. So Swift Runner <laughs> is just the most famous of many Wendigo cannibalistic murders that have been reported to happen in the early days of the United States and Canada. Because, yes, there was other reports in the United States. In fact, it happened frequently enough for psychologists to name a phenomenon Wendigo psychosis after it. They claim that situations of extreme cold, isolation, and hunger can drive a person into a state where they become obsessed with eating human flesh. So the survival cannibalism becomes an obsession, not just a, like, isolated, horrible incident. Psychiatrists call, call this a culture-bound syndrome, as it seems to only occur within the Algonquin tribes. Now, as time marches forward, as it always does, and Native people were exposed more to and developed in Western culture, Wendigo psychosis all but vanished. Some medical professionals doubt it ever existed in the first place, claiming that the Wendigo was a device people came up with, as I said before, to explain away the desperation cannibalism that began to occur with terrifying frequency. It was, and I mean, you you said also that like, indigenous people at the time had less and less. They had less Mm -hmm. land. Their homes were less. It's just they didn't have as much. Mm -hmm. So that probably would have caused like a desperate, hungry state among them. Well, even the lands that they had, so there was also, uh, because, okay, so a lot of their hunting, they would would hunt for bison, and Mm -hmm. bison was on the verge of extinction at this point. Mm -hmm. So even the lands that they were living on, they were like, we, our hunting isn't as good right now. Which anyway. which is what would drive them mm-hmm. to more incidences of cannibalism because when you're desperate and hungry, that happens. And I told you everything you said tied right back around mm-hmm. into this. And that's why this Wendigo psychosis seems to be like a flash in in culture in that area and time because that's when it kind of happened. That's when these incidents of cannibalism happen. It was too hard to admit that people would actually kill and eat their families when they were starving. So we had to have a monster to blame it on. Still, 
How could such an horrific event happen so many times in the exact same way? Mm-hmm. How could something so extreme be so common that it needed a name? Maybe times were just that hard. Or maybe the Wendigo was real. Wendigo. We don't know. Wendigo. Wendigo. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. So that is the story of Swift Runner and the Wendigo. All right. And a bunch of really great history along the way. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, so I quickly looked up Blood Quantum again just to okay. uh, clarify. Sure. Um, because I think originally I did think that they were like testing blood. Yeah, which can't be possible. No, no. And especially because, um, and I had thought about that before because this started in like the 1700s. Yeah, you can't be doing, they were that. doing it. No, and they did it with uh, slaves too mm. as well. Um, but it would it's it is more of a just ancestral line. So they So they're would, tracing like yeah, who's your just, dad? Who's that? Yeah, yeah okay. And in, in whether they can obviously they can test blood now to right. to see, but it still is just um it was another way too for the government to know everything about just to have a record mm-hmm. of what these lines are. Yeah. You know? Ugh. Awful. Yeah. So toast? Toast. Do you have one? I have one. You go first. <laughs> I want to toast the deer skull Wendigo. Okay. Because they never really did anything and they just look really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they give it a lot of credit. They're not really real, but they like pretty good appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, deer skull Wendigo. Um, okay. I guess I will toast the Indigenous tribes of Canada. Yeah, all of them. All Cheers. Them. <laughs> and marvelous f- flying person. Oh, the flying wonder. <laughs> <That's his name. laughs> I guess I, mean, I like my name better. The poor sister that had to marry a stranger. Oh, maybe a stranger marrying sister. Yeah. <laughs> so to that that lady. <laughs> all right. And we have a new patron. Yay! A best fiend forever. <gasps> yes. Who hopefully does not get taken over by the Wendigo. No, certainly not. Dead boy. Yay! Cheers, dead boy. We had a fantastic conversation Mm -hmm. um, with this human uh, this week over on the Facebook group. It was super interesting, and um, I hope to cover a case that relates back to it. So I just wanted to put out there that I really appreciated that talking point, and I want more like that. It was great. And uh, if we were inhabited by a Wendigo, eventually Mm. we We would would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. We're not going to talk about how you ate Christmas. It's fine. It's fine. Wee.